Hello and welcome back to the Cave Escape. I'm Ashton Goolsby. And I'm Caleb Groves. And we're back here this week. <laughs> it's been a bit longer than a week for us um, right. since the last one, oh, which is actually probably good because I could barely talk this time last week. <laughs> if you had tuned in last week for real, it would have uh, I would have sounded like Darth Vader. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> James Earl Jones is our guest star today. <laughs> um, but we're back. We talked last time about natural philosophy. And this time we're wanting to jump over to talking about more philosophy, which we're going to split up into two different discussions. Because mm-hmm. this book, the section is twice as long as the normal sections we've been doing. Yeah. And we always seem to run out of time with things we want to say anyway. Right. And, and I don't have time to read it because I read slow <laughs> and I'm still in college. <laughs> and we're on no time crunch for this reading. Right. So <laughs> we can make our own schedule. Yes. <laughs> also, they divide it into two conveniently spaced out sections. Anyway. That is true. Yeah. So. They helped us out with that one. Yeah. I guess if we just go on and jump right into the yeah, book. Yeah, sure. So the, the book opens up, which I didn't realize at the beginning. I kind of skimmed it because mm-hmm. uh, I, I started rereading Abolition of Man again over the weekend. But they open up with a quote of C.S. Lewis's from The Abolition of Man, which they actually keep coming back to throughout the entire thing. Yeah. Um, so the quote they open with, I'll just read, was, For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality and the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. For magic and applied science alike, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. The solution is a technique, and both in the practice of this technique are ready to do things hitherto regarded as disgusting and impious. So right away, he starts off with this quote, what they kind of go through in this section that we're talking about today, the idea of science, which we, we talked about this last time, the idea of science is us recognizing we are in submission to the laws of nature, not trying to assert our dominance over it. Right. So it's the idea of learning to live in accordance with the laws that are inherent in nature, which is what the ancients tried to do with natural philosophy and then even a moral philosophy Versus now with our scientific, quote-unquote, mindset and modernity, it, post-enlightenment is this idea of how can I make the creation do what I want it to do? How can I make it serve me? Which, as even Lewis here is arguing, is not what traditionally the understanding of science or natural philosophy was. Yeah, and so the, on the on the next page they do go on to define moral philosophy as saying, uh, in Christian moral philosophy, man is considered holistically amid all his relationships, seeking both temporal and eternal happiness through virtue by knowing, following, and worshiping Christ. Hmm. And so kind of, like you were just saying, in natural philosophy, the problematic flip from the way the ancients understood it to how we understand science now being now we want to subdue nature rather than submitting to the natural order. In the similar way, in in a similar way with more philosophy, it's kind of now we think of it as more of this individualistic kind of a thing where it's just each individual person, um, as I kind of go on to talk about, rather than the like cosmic order of society and like being in a community with other people. And so more philosophy is the study of 
uh, how did they phrase it right there? He's considered holistically among all his relationships. Hmm. So that idea of it, it's it's not a specific field of what can this do for me, but it's it's, it's studying it holistically itself is what you're saying? Yeah, or like it's it's trying to find happiness, like it says, uh, through virtue, but like not only like in each individual person. So I mean, I mean that's kind of like what they start to unpack in the next like sections and stuff. Mm. But the idea of man doesn't exist by himself as an individual; he exists in a community with relationships with other people. And so, in studying like kind of anthropology, social science, ethics, all these different kinds of things that we're going to talk about, it's important to consider that man, part of like the way that man exists, is in a community with relationships. Oh yeah, yeah. And all those things, like the way that we philosophize about the meaning of life and the end of man depends upon the fact that we are in relationship with other people constantly as a part of our existence, basically. Yeah. That actually reminds me of a a quote I heard by Tolkien the other day. He he was saying something about, with his stories, he said, uh, this was actually, it was a video, BBC something with him, where he said in his in his story, he's he's focusing on the idea of every character, the and he said this is true of life too. We have in front of us the idea of someday we are going to die, and he said mm-hmm. that's what everybody's confronted with. And the question is, what do you do in the meantime? Mm-hmm. Do you is it worthwhile, or do you just kind of sit around and twiddle your thumbs and be afraid of it? Huh. But that that idea then of living with a purpose for something else. And they even right. go on to talk about, they go on to talk about the idea of there has to be some meaning for our human existence. And you can just tell even from the Greek philosophers, there was there had to be some meaning, a purpose we were building toward. And as Christians, we understand, as the Westminster Confession says, which they quote in here, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Right. So we know that ultimately we're created to live in fellowship and communion with God. We can't do that because we're sinful. And the whole story of Scripture is Christ coming to do what Adam couldn't do and restore us to that in the end. So that ultimately when we die, we understand that we will be resurrected to that. Right. And so we have this this end goal to go toward. Yeah. And then And that's... And that that's where we find our happiness. Yeah. And our ultimate, uh, how do they phrase it? I guess that would be like our eternal happiness that they refer to there. Yeah. Seeking both temporal and eternal happiness. Because I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think they go on to say that the way that we think about it now, like in social science and stuff, we don't actually consider eternal happiness at all. Yeah. It's just temporal happiness and... It's not related to any kind of eternal happiness either, which mm-hmm. for us as Christians, our temporal happiness and our eternal happiness are very tied together. Oh, yeah. Well, it's like they have that quote from, uh, who was it? Martin it was Aristotle? Oh. Well, at the end of it, I'm jumping to the end for a second. Oh, gotcha. Martin Seligman, they have this quote at the end. He's from the American Psychological Association. And he, he talks about these these ways we shortchange people with modern psychology 
And he has this quote here that you gave a long, it's actually a couple pages quote by him. But he says, there's, there's three basic costs of the modern, and I can't remember when, he, he's writing in the 40, 45 to 50, somewhere in there, I think, 1945, 1950. But he says there's three main costs of modern psychology. He says the first cost was moral, that we become victimologists and pathologers. pathologers. <laughs> Our view of human nature was that mental illness fell on you like a ton of bricks, and we forgot about notions like choice, responsibility, preference, will, character, and the like. The second cost was that by working only on mental illness, we forgot about making the lives of relatively untroubled people happier, more productive, and more fulfilling. The third cost was that because we were trying to undo pathology, we didn't develop interventions to make people happier. We developed interventions to make people less miserable. Interesting. So whereas we as Christians are focused on, we find ultimate happiness in Christ. Right. Which I don't want to get into this too strongly, but my, my this is part of why I sometimes get a little frustrated with the field of psychology is because of what he's saying here. I feel like it's just an attempt to make you content and less miserable rather than building toward the eternal joy that can be found in Christ and this idea of teaching somebody as we ought to as Christians of, yes, you are a sinful sinner. Yes, you've done horrible things. Acknowledge that and hand that over to Christ. So we're not supposed to sit and wallow in our sin and misery and guilt. Christ has come to set us free from that. Mm-hmm. So we can find joy in him. We can find joy in him. Right. Yet we're too often, I feel like, told, well, the best you can do is just be content. Just yeah. just be content knowing that you will always be miserable and we can take the edge off of it a little bit. Hmm. And I feel like I feel like that's a failing on the church's part. Yeah. I feel like that's we can't necessarily blame the culture, I don't think, for that. I think that's a failing on us as the church to spread the gospel hmm. in that way. Interesting, yeah. I've never really thought about that. I do think we should probably talk about uh, the distinction they make talking about what more philosophy actually is or was mm-hmm. and how it, like, it wasn't just ethics. It encompassed a lot of different things, mm-hmm. uh, way more than we tend to think of it being now. Uh, and it, like, it was the kind of, I think they talk about it as being kind of essentially almost social sciences loosely, but not actually what we would put, like, it encompasses what we would call social sciences today but it encompasses way more than that too. Cause we kind of, we alluded to that at the beginning. Yeah. I, th- I think the main thing he said was he says it basically is social sciences. Um, but then they make the case that since the time of, they specifically named uh, Francis Bacon. They said many in social sciences are no doubt driven simply by a desire to understand. Philosophy is the desire to know truth. So in that sense, social science, as long as it does that is, staying aligned with moral philosophy. Mm -hmm. But then they move on. But since the time of Francis Bacon, many see knowledge primarily as power. Right. Which... Which I even thought of like Schoolhouse Rock. How Schoolhouse Rock? Because there's like, there's one of the songs that goes, because knowledge is power. It's like one of the songs in Schoolhouse Rock. Man, I haven't seen that in a long time. Yeah. 
(laughs) (laughs) But like, so like even that, like just being taught to kids, because like Mm -hmm. I never thought about that being a problem Mm -hmm. because it was Schoolhouse Rock. Schoolhouse Rock, that has to be right, right? (laughs) (laughs) But, right. (laughs) But yeah, so I never like really thought about that being a problematic philosophical foundation because because of schoolhouse rock actually really but but if you think about it i mean it it is true yeah we've, i mean we've got like these phones sitting next to us we've got more knowledge at our fingertips than any generation has ever had right if i want to know just about anything i can look it up yeah and we we flaunt that around as well look we are the greatest generation to ever exist because we have the iPhone. Right. And I don't know how many people in this book and other conversations I've had recently that have said literally just using the term iPhone itself because we have the iPhone does not mean that we are the best generation of people to ever exist. Right. There are things that the ancient people understood that we don't even think about anymore, but they were much more in line with the way that the natural order worked, which is, again, mm-hmm. what they get to with philosophy in here. It's the idea of being in line with how are things actually, what is true, and how do I align myself with an understanding of what is true and live that in accordance with that. Yeah. Which we don't even know how to do anymore, mm-hmm. which they'll get into a bit later. The breakdown of how exactly we got to the, from the idea of there is objective truth to truth is relative. Yeah. Because whereas the ancients were concerned with what is true, Philosophy is the study of what is true. Mm-hmm. And today we go, well, y- that's your truth. You can believe the truth that you want to believe. Mm-hmm. So we don't even have a concept of thinking about some of these things that they right. just thought about anymore. Well, even like their concept of what it meant to know something was totally different. Because like what you're just saying, like we have knowledge at our fingertips in the iPhone. But I don't think that that's like knowledge in the sense that the ancients would have used it because the way that they understood knowledge, at least to my understanding, is like internalizing it and making it a part of yeah. who you are. Because they, like, they would study truth and they would tune their hearts to reality for the purpose of virtue. Mm-hmm. And so it was like this whole thing. They would study philosophy for the purpose of like building their character. And so knowledge assumed in some kind of internalization and like making it a part of who you were. Which now, it's it's we don't do that at all. Mm-hmm. It's just oh, I want to know this random fact about history, and so you just look it up, and you're like, yep, that's what that is. But it doesn't actually change who you are. Like you don't internalize yeah. it at all. Yeah, which that that's a big thing too. Which is not to jump on the bandwagon of talking about AI, but with, <laughs> like you go from this, I feel like the the AI stuff that's coming out now is just even further stepped removed. Because the thing with even with the stuff that I can look up on my phone. I actually still have to engage with it to some extent. So if I'm yeah. if I'm wanting to if I'm a student that has to write a paper, I have to somehow engage with the material um a basic level at least to write a paper talking about the ideas. Right. Now it's further removed from like back in our grandparents' day where you had to go to the library you had to find the book. You had to dig. You had to look it up. I can just type in keywords here, and it gives me fact after fact after fact after fact. Right. I don't even have to. I don't have to search for it. So in that sense, I don't internalize it. I don't really have to go through this process of finding it. And it doesn't. It's 
it's not ingrained in me the same way as it was then. Mm -hmm. But even still, until quite recently, I had to take that information. I had to organize it in a way and think about it on some level. But now with this AI stuff, I can just tell the computer to take the facts that I've pointed it toward and compile something that sounds like I would have written it and I can pass it off as my own work. And it has, I was talking with um, John about this with Mm -hmm. Casita's copywriting and things. And even he was saying that there's the danger then of, we have the problem now of we, we don't know where sources are on things, but if you let this AI just generate everything, who's saying it? What is actually being said? We don't even know what we're saying anymore. Yeah. And so all meaning is lost. Hmm. So I think even that, the AI stuff, leads us even farther away from the internalization of knowledge to where now we're dealing with basically nothing. We have internalized nothing. We don't know how to even think about Hmm. the information we're presented with, which is dangerous when we have this portal right next to us open to seemingly limitless knowledge. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Because even the content and like the stuff that we're reading to get knowledge isn't from an actual rational being. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. And back to the, like the difference between the way the ancients thought and the way that we think about it now. Uh, there's this one quote from the book saying, none of the major ancient thinkers would have believed as we will see many social scientists do today, that there is no such thing as virtue or that one could be happy without it. And then he goes to talk on about Plato's Republic and then, right. Uh, and like the difference Aristotle. between Aristotle yeah. and Socrates, right? Yeah, he says um, Socrates, through his dialogues and in the manner of his death, seems to indicate that the life of virtue, along with provided true happiness, should be pursued no matter the cost. Yeah. So Socrates' argument was, because they brought up the question in the book here, is it better to live a virtuous life and be viewed as an unvirtuous person or to live an unvirtuous life and be perceived as a virtuous person. And mm-hmm. I said Socrates and Aristotle reached two different conclusions. Socrates, by the fact that he was willing to die rather than recant what he believed, right? he said it's better to be virtuous and die people thinking you unvirtuous. And Aristotle said the inverse of that. Did he say the inverse of that? Or was he just... I guess not, not exactly... Um, they said Aristotle, on the other hand, considered that the pursuit of virtue on its own could be frustrated by a lack of wealth. And they have a quote from him. The link between virtue and happiness is qualified in several important respects. Aristotle admits that it is difficult or impossible to act virtuously or to attain happiness without a modicum of external goods. Right. So I guess Socrates is saying virtue is ultimately what makes you happy. And Aristotle saying it's more than just virtue. Was yeah. that a correct understanding? Yeah, that's that's kind of how I understood it, which I don't okay. see as being like the inverse. Yeah, I, I guess I was. Because he's not saying it's better to look virtuous but not actually be virtuous. Yeah, he's I just saying that there are like other external things that contribute to your happiness mm. other than being a virtuous person. Yeah, I guess that makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah. Which. I think makes a lot of sense. And I, I, as I was thinking through this when I was reading it, I was thinking it is definitely harder to be happy if you are if you don't have wealth. But then at the same time, and I was thinking through it like a, from a Christian perspective, 
if you do have wealth, then it's harder to actively pursue virtue and Christ-likeness because everything's fine and you're just kind of like happy being where you are. It's easy to become content and not strive to move forward Yeah, when your life is cushy. And so there's kind of like a... Like the rich young ruler? Yeah. Like the, there, there, there's a, a difficulty on both ends of that in pursuing happiness where if you don't, if you're like super poor, it's harder to be happy because your life isn't cushy, but you can still be striving towards happiness. But then if your life is cushy, then it's easy to forget to pursue happiness because you feel like you already are, you know, yeah. does that make sense? Yeah. Th- yeah. And so is a good point. I think it's kind of like, while yes, I agree with Aristotle wealth does contribute to happiness. I think that in this sense, the ultimate sense of happiness that we're talking about, it doesn't necessarily make it easier if you do have it. Because we're shooting for ultimate happiness, not necessarily feelings of pleasure in the moment. Yeah, that is a big distinction. Happiness versus pleasure Yeah, is a big distinction because we a lot of times think, well, this makes me happy. I mean, I could testify to times in my own life when I'm like, right. this is making me happy. And then look back later and like, you know, I was completely miserable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like, I used an analogy with my class the other day. Um, I don't even know what we were reading at this point. It was something with writing. I don't know how this came up. But the idea of, would you, everybody thinks it would be, especially when they were kids, thought it would be a great idea to just be able to eat nothing but junk food all the time. Yeah. And you think that would be amazing. And then you get to do it. And the next day, you're just like, why on earth did I do that? Yeah. I felt like crap. <laughs> but this is kind of the the difference of pleasure and actual happiness. You you do something, which I think is, is a pitfall of, um, it's kind of where we find ourselves in our society now, I think. Mm-hmm. We have so much things around to give us pleasure yeah. that we don't actually, in a lot of cases, know what it means to be happy. Because we're used to just being content with the various pleasures. It's like like the Roman saying bread and circuses. You can keep the people happy with giving them free bread and give them free entertainment. And you can keep them contented. Mm-hmm. But they're not actually happy that way. They're not living their life to the full extent that they could yeah. be living it. Which they go on to say here. Um, they make the case. The Christian can never be satisfied merely with wealth, friends, and temporal goods, or even his own virtues, if he has not found satisfaction in Christ. And satisfaction in Christ, which is first discovered in the righteousness that comes from God by faith, is greater gain than anything the world can offer us. Thus, discipleship to Christ, obedience to the law of love, and the pursuit of holiness for the Christian are essential to moral philosophy." So it's not just, they said it's closer to Plato than Aristotle, but it's even a step beyond because yeah. even even the virtue that we pursue is only beautiful because it takes us a step farther and it's rooted in Christ. Right. And in servitude and love of him. Mm-hmm. And so, well, even, even Plato, I think, called philosophy theology, right? I think they said that. Like he would kind of use them slightly interchangeably because of how much overlap there is, similar to how like Augustine also did the Venn diagram of moral philosophy and theology is 
it's not a circle, but it's close <laughs> because of what you were just saying, because of how tied up everything is in, uh, so like the centrality of participation in Christ for the development of Christian virtue, the pursuit of godliness or piety became the ground of virtue. And Christians are made just or virtuous by grace through faith in Christ. And so everything that we're studying and the whole point of studying moral philosophy is essentially an outworking of the Christian faith. And so even Plato understood that this is related to God in some way and right. like the spiritual aspect of reality. Yeah. Which tying back to, I mean, this whole series we've been doing is on classical education. Right. That's the purpose of classical education mm-hmm. is recognizing math and history and science all find their root in God's created order. So going back to the trivium, you're studying language. He's created language. Language is how we even conceive of things. So you're studying how do words work? How do they relate? You're studying relationship through word. Then you move on to study the quote-unquote more natural sciences, I guess we could say in a sense, or the yeah. the disciplines of math and those relationships there. Were they the mathematical arts? Yeah, um, yeah, mathematical arts, I should have said. But again, it's we haven't m- really moved from the idea, even here in moral philosophy, of we're just studying God. And to, to know a thing well, you have to know it from multiple different angles. And that's mm-hmm. really what classical education is about. It's a, study, it's a study of God, but we're examining... We're examining him from different angles, as as you would like a f- fine jewel. You want to hold right. up to the light and turn it different like different ways. different aspects of creation. Yeah, kind of. And then here with more philosophy, where we're more turning and looking, kind of into man. Yeah. Would you say? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think that makes a lot of sense. <clears throat> so we turn our eye from from the creation mm-hmm. back in on. Man, well, because we're also still part of creation, right? Yeah, I was yeah. Just to say that because God's revealed in His creation, so we study His creation, like the like outside of ourselves creation, but then also once we've understood that more basic aspect of His revelation, then we turn to humanity, which is we're made in the image of God, so we're yeah. even more we reveal God more than just like nature and the world does. I mm-hmm. would say. Since we're made in his image and creation isn't. Yeah. Would you, could you, I guess, could we argue that, in a sense, moral philosophy is, which, do they make the point that studying moral philosophy is, in a sense, studying what it means to be made imago Dei, in the image of God? I don't remember if they argue that or not. Do you, do but you I, think that's a fair point? I think I think that makes sense. Because they do talk a lot about our, our nature, some of our, our wants and desires, and what it means to be virtuous and mm-hmm. how, how we understand things to an extent, because they do tie it closely to things like psychology even, which mm-hmm. I think their complaint was we narrowed too much in on our own mind and subconscious in yeah. ways that were unhealthy. But it is still dealing with how do we as humans process and reason things. Yeah. Which is part of what makes us, because somebody somewhere in here, I don't think I underlined it, talked about animals as being the only true automatons the only true like robots hmm. in a sense 
Yeah. Whereas they're thinking they're programmed to work certain ways and they kind of follow these patterns, but man alone has the ability to look back at himself and go, why did I do that? Right. That's something that I'm going to choose to not do, even though I want to do it. And mm-hmm. A dog can't choose to not eat when there's food in front of it and it has the desire to eat. It can't regulate its own desires. Right. I remember that was something Mr. Spun always threw out. Mm-hmm. So moral philosophy is kind of a examination to, if it's virtue, well, I can choose to do the virtuous thing or not the virtuous thing. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of getting more to like the, some of the more psychological subcategories of moral philosophy, I would say. Because I wouldn't yeah. say that all of moral philosophy is about that necessarily. Because moral philosophy does kind of encompass a, a broad range That's of true. Yeah. what we've now divided into all these different subjects, but we're all just moral philosophy before. Yeah. So um, before I know, we have to wrap up at some point, but um, <laughs> I, I don't know if you quite made it to this part toward the end. Yeah, I didn't finish um, the reading. <laughs> um, but they did... They did get on to Freud a little bit, and they they made the claim that he made the he dealt the final blow to the uh, liberal ideology. Um, <clears throat> and they say here, yet it was a liberal and rationalist Sigmund Freud writing at Vienna in the early year of the early years of the twentieth century who dealt the final blow to the liberal ideology by his analysis of the psyche and his discovery of the vast uncharted territory of the unconscious. And when they had tasted the fruit of psychological knowledge, the children of Adam Smith were driven out of their cozy liberal paradise in which they had lived so securely into a jungle where they had to face wild beasts whose very existence they had ignored. Thus, at the very moment when man acquired an almost unlimited power over nature by the new technology, he became aware of his own sufficiency. I got to that part. Oh, you did? Yeah, I read that. Good for you. <laughs> but they're talking about the idea of we we had built up this this new philosophy so far, and we could do. We were so impressed by things that we could do with a lot of this post enlightenment philosophy, and it was almost like there were there were parts we'd been ignoring, and then Freud opened us up to these darker parts of our mind. As I guess my understanding mm-hmm. of it, and we weren't really sure what to do with it. Yeah, that part was a little bit confusing to me. I didn't fully understand that. And they said the thing about, like, at the same moment that we realized, like, in the Industrial Revolution, that we had almost unlimited power over nature, we simultaneously realized our own insufficiency. Mm-hmm. And then and then that being, like, reinforced with both of the world wars. Yeah, yeah, they tied it into world wars. Yeah which I think is are perfect examples of the insane power of technology and man's own inefficiency or insufficiency. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Well, then they also, they go on to say, I, I tied it back and I said to go back to 155. It says most theoreticians in social science disciplines do not espouse man as having a unique nature consistent of consisting of body and soul and thus they treat human actions as hypothetical results of biology and surrounding physical and cultural forces, which goes back to the idea we were talking about at the beginning where we try to divorce our actions. In, in psychology, we don't question things like, like motives and things that people 
we don't we don't give people responsibility, I guess, for their actions. We try to put it off too often on, well, this is just because of their biology. They can't help right. but be what, they can't help but be what they are. Or it's just the or way they grew up, like their nurture. Yeah, nurture versus nature. Yeah, which in a sense is not to a hundred percent just throw that stuff out the window, saying it's not important at all. Mm-hmm. But you also, at the end of the day, have to realize whoever it is has made a choice. And I was actually listening to somebody talking about this this morning on another podcast I listened to. Um, there was somebody that recently, I think it was in Florida, um, they they gave them the death sentence because they'd, they'd shot somebody, they'd been put on death row, then they escaped and they stabbed somebody to death. Whoa. And then the second time they came back, and I think it was Ron DeSantis actually was just like, nope, that's it. And a bunch of people were upset about it, and the guy I was listening to talking about it, he said, you can always you can always keep passing the buck, but he said there comes a point where somebody has to just take it. He said you can always pass the buck somewhere, but at some point it has to land on somebody. He said where it lands is with whoever did whatever they did. He said okay, you can make the case mm-hmm. as they tried to do with this guy. Well, he was raised in a in a broken home, and his mom uh, was drank like eighteen beers a day or something while he was in her womb, and then that led to this. They said that may all be true, and then they would make the case. Probably her mother did the same thing, and then her mother back did the same thing. Mm-hmm. But he said at some point, somebody has to answer for the actions. And he said you're responsible for your own actions. Yeah. He said not discounting those are horrible things that happened. Mm-hmm. We should want to help people in those situations. Yes. N- no joke, anything. But at the same point, they've made choices, and they do have responsibility for the choices they've made. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like those, those are very good points, and it is true that those things contributed to the way that this person ended up. However, that just means that we should work towards preventing those situations for people to grow up in in the future. Yeah, and helping people, just like in general, helping people become better people. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't excuse the fact that this person did this thing. Yeah. And that's that's even something like I've been talking about, just like trying to teach young kids, this idea of things that they do. You can ex- you can excuse stuff, all that little kids, they don't understand. But at some point, you have to teach them to understand your your actions have consequences, and it's not just it's not just how it affects that particular kid, but their actions also have consequences for those around them as well. Mm-hmm. So teaching people that if Christian love especially, we, we've kind of gotten fuzzy in our brains, but you can love somebody and try to help them through a situation but also still call what they're doing sinful. Right. And sometimes that's what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately to love somebody is to want their the best for them. And if you see them actively doing something that's hurtful to them and others, to get them to stop doing that. Right. Which kind of brings us full circle back to the beginning all the things that we think make us happy that we want that ultimately make us so miserable that person can think well i'm i'm very happy i'm very content with this right now because nobody's telling me what i'm doing is wrong and i don't feel negative feelings inside of me right but they're there's they're hurting and they don't even realize it mm-hmm. and it's not like i mean i can even think of things before where i didn't realize this is wherever i am or whatever i'm doing it's really making me unhappy until you remove from the situation. Like when I quit, when I quit 
my job in college that I really did not enjoy, walking out of the building, I did not realize how stressed out I was by it until I walked out the building my last shift. It felt like I had lost like 30 pounds. Yeah. So that ultimately, again, not, not, this has been a long rant. I feel like I've been gone on, (laughs) but not trying to discount the bad situations people are in. They definitely are sad and they need help and should definitely have attention to them, but you also can't excuse them. Because you're still responsible for your own actions. Yes. So I think that brings us to the end of our time. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. This week, I don't actually know if we said this right at the beginning or not, but this section was like moral philosophy and virtue. And then the next section is going to be moral philosophy and community. Yes. So obviously very closely tied. We talked about community a lot this time, but that's kind of how they have the sections divided up. We'll have, we should have the blog posted up. Uh, There should be a summary of this episode. Should and be. should be. I don't know if there is one for the last episode or not. <laughs> um, but it, it may have materialized randomly in the middle of the week. And... Right. <laughs> <laughs> but the timestamp. <laughs> anyway. Oh, the uh, wonders of the internet. So you can go on there. I'll leave us comments. Any questions you have. Yes, uh, please do. Please, if you have any advice on how to talk about things, if we're not talking about something in a helpful way, then please let us know so that we can be more clear with the way we talk about things. But until next time, take care.